Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. Uh, I'm just with Sue Grimmett today, uh, recently back from retreat. So you're looking refreshed. You, are you feeling that that new renewed spirit? Yeah, I certainly have got a lot of inner space going on, which I'm hoping I'll hold on to as I get back into work. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Well, uh, we are so thrilled about today's conversation. Uh, it's with somebody who uh, probably doesn't need a lot of an introduction to, to many of our listeners. Uh, Cole Arthur Riley is a writer and a poet. She's the creator of Black Liturgies and the author of This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation and the Stories That Make Us. Uh, Cole, thank you so much for, for joining us. Where are we talking to you from today? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm in Ithaca, New York. Beautiful. Lots wonderful. of snow here. Very different from yes. where you are, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, it is a very, uh, very humid summer morning here in Brisbane. Uh, well, well, look, we're we're hoping to have a, a conversation today, I guess, about the the stories that make us, the bodies we live in, and the sense of the sacred that is collectively calling us out of something broken into something new, which is um, all these threads that you beautifully explore in your work. I thought maybe as a starting point, though, the, the Black Liturgies account on Instagram is where people probably first came across uh, you and, and your work. It's been running for, I think, a touch over two years now. For those who maybe haven't come across it, can you tell us the, the story of um, where Black Liturgies came from and um, and how it came about? Sure. Um, I started Black Liturgies, yeah, you're right, It's it's been over two years now, which is just surreal to think about. Uh, time moves differently in a pandemic. Yes, um, but I, I started it the the summer of 2020, and it was you know during a time where there was a lot of I don't know what would I say a, a lot of talk at least about people being willing to contend with black people being murdered by the police and George Floyd had just been murdered quite publicly and um, on the heels of a handful of very other public Black murders, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, um, Elijah McLean. And I was in this place, uh, and I think many of us were were in a place where I was trying to, I don't know, really ask myself if the spiritual spaces I found myself in were capable of holding Black grief in a meaningful way, capable of caring for Black bodies in um, a true way. And, you know, I have always written, I've always expressed myself much better in, in writing. And so I think I was looking for a way to kind of make sense of, of the state I was in. And so I started this um, project called Black Liturgies, which was kind of connecting my writing as well as other Black literature with black emotion and with the black body and was just trying to find some sense of community you know like what 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 other people are feeling maybe a bit alienated in, in spiritual spaces right now or alienated from their from themselves even and um obviously you know it grew much past what i was initially anticipating it's i was thinking you know a few dozen of us would have this intimate <laughs> community <laughs> and it's it's certainly not that but i think the the kind of goal of it has remained the same the integration of spiritual practice with black writing you know black emotion in the black body that that stayed consistent 
that must have been a, almost a little bit disorienting to have been initially intending to create something intimate and then see it sort of just snowballing into this enormous um, online movement. How did you, I guess, how did you process that as it was happening? Oh, it was, um, yeah, it was very difficult and very disorienting. Uh, I, I, um, my friends, they like just still kind of laugh at the whole situation because before Black Liturgy is, even now to some extent, I'm very like technologically um, deficient. I like <laughs> didn't know how anything worked. I had to have, you know, um, so much help, a friend, yeah, and, and uh, friends along the way have just laughed and like, you didn't know you can do this. And so it, it certainly, there, not much thought, I will say. I, I lacked strategy and thought, honestly, in terms of the form I would express these things in. It, it didn't, a lot of thought didn't go into it. I was just like, oh, I'll just use Instagram. And that was that. And um, very quickly, you know, after three weeks, I, I had about 5,000 followers. So it was very quick at the beginning and um it was it, it's difficult I think I, I still struggle with this today I'm not convinced anyone was meant to have tens of thousands of people affirming or not affirming them on a regular basis I'm just not sure like from a human standpoint that's uh you know exactly what we were meant for and and so mm. I've had to really um yeah, keep an eye on myself, keep an eye on my own interior world and have people to kind of ground me to balance the amount of input I'm receiving constantly from people yeah. for better and, and for worse. Yeah, it is, it is hard, isn't it? You'd think we're actually probably made for a village of, you know, we might have a few hundred people hanging around that we can have connected with. And um, from an evolutionary perspective that we, we've grown from that kind of basis and suddenly we've got this world where you can connect with millions. Plus we have the news of 8 billion people coming to us every day, you know, and I mm -hmm. think it's hard for our brains to, to cope. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm interested, Cole, um, because the the account obviously you mentioned there it came out of a the specific probably American context um, with the injustices and tragedies um, that we all saw around 2020 um, that have been obviously systemic for for many many years. But it has uh, had a resonance worldwide um, in different communities in in um, different injustices as well. What do you think it is? Is that I guess as the the common thread that has helped people worldwide in all these different contexts connect with the account yeah um yeah I've been surprised to watch that that happen if I'm honest I I think I'm still trying to put my my finger on that place that but um I I certainly have hopes as to why that might be I think I I hope I'm creating a place of um of nuance and of like permission you know I I, I try my best to you know, never be threatened by anyone else's beliefs, belief systems. I, I, I personally tried to live by that. And I think I'm hoping that creates a sense of like spaciousness when people engage Black liturgies, that they feel like they don't need to think the exact same things as me. They don't need to feel those things. But, you know, do you enter the space feeling human? Do you leave the space feeling a little more human? Mm. Um, that's my hope, at least. And I think right now, especially online and on social media there's a real um a real hunger for nuance although i don't think people would articulate that that hunger i don't think that people necessarily uh 
uh, cognitively understand that they're hungry for that. But whenever you encounter it, I think it's it, it's quite refreshing. Honestly, it, it feels like a kind of renewal. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great point. I think we um we speak a lot about what the future of the spiritual traditions uh, might be, what future expressions might be, and. I think Black Liturgies is just about the best uh, expression I have seen of how this can live in an online space because it does hold that nuance it, and it keeps uh, hold of those threads of compassion without jumping into, I guess, all of the risks and pitfalls that online communication can have with it. Um, obviously, the, the book has then um, grown out of that account. This here flesh has, has sort of been something that's followed the account. Can you tell us the story of how Black Liturgies led to uh, to the book? Yes, Um yeah, I still smile. Like I'm, I'm, I'm smiling right now. I feel like still so lucky. Uh, so very early on into me sharing writing on Black liturgies, I had a handful of publishers approach me, and some very lovely Black women online were quick to kind of take me under their wing and and help make connections for me. Um, the publishing world can be very opaque. Um, as, as many people will know. And so I had some some help connecting with an agent and was able to eventually create this year flush. Uh, I thought, so, you know, if you go on Black Liturgies, you see it's it's pretty distant from me as a person, you know, like I, I don't show my face often. I don't necessarily share a lot about me personally. Um, and so when I first started to write this here flesh, I kind of was anticipating just something similar, something, um, yeah, close to that. And it just so happened that in that season of life, I had been interviewing different family members just as a personal project, really had, I'd been trying to preserve some family stories and, um, doing that around that time made it so that when I went to write the the book it was like I couldn't help but bring a little more of of myself and those stories into it specifically the stories of my father and, and grandmother I was mm. noticing so much overlap so much tension and 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 harmony in our stories that you know like every time I would go to write it was like that was loudest in me um and so what what came out of that was this kind of um, mixture, this entanglement of of intergenerational story with some of the spiritual contemplation that I initially had in anticipated. I, I grounded it in story, which ended up being very true to who I am, very true to kind of who I am as a writer, um, long before Black liturgies, you know, and I, I was able to kind of draw on I don't want to say more authenticity, but like a different kind of authenticity, a different kind of transparency that, um, yeah, was really special. Yeah. You mentioned your, your dad there and, and something beautiful. I think it's I was saying to Sue, just before we started recording, I think it's one of the best, um, parenting things I've ever heard the, the way he would encourage writing in you from a very young age. Can you share the stories of, I guess, uh, how it was that he embedded within you a, a, a deep love of, of expressing yourself in words? Yes. Um, yeah, he's very clever man. And, you know, so I don't come from a family of, of readers or, or writers. It's really just me and, and my grandma who's now passed who, like, apart from that, 
you know, my, my dad would never claim to be a reader or a writer. It's just not his thing. And, but I was a very, uh, a very quiet child. Um, I wasn't very verbal until I was around eight really is when that started to come together for me. And, um, I was in a very loud and a very verbal family, a family of charismatic, just lovely, hilarious, um, just people who are good with people. Um, I was very distinct in that way. And and my father was, was, was very, my young father, you know, he's had me and my sister when he was a teenager, but even then had a sense of like emotional maturity to see, okay, this, I have this little girl who probably feels, you know, so dislocated from the rest of us. And I think he he knew I needed some kind of tool of expression, especially given the people that I was around. And so um, he just chose writing as that tool of expression. And I, I took to it. Um, and he chose that probably because when we were in situations with other people, I often would like pass him notes or I would pass my sister notes because I didn't want to speak in public or I felt like I couldn't. So he really latched onto that and he would like pay us to write poems or short stories or like he would, um, you know, say, well, you could do this chore, you know, you could take out the trash or you could write a poem on the color yellow and, and things like that. Or <laughs> even if we wanted to go to the park to play with our friends, to be honest, he'd say, yeah, okay, give me give me a stanza, (laughs) everyone write this. And and we'd have a lot of competitions. So the thing I find so lovely about is he didn't just make it my thing. He found a way to kind of incorporate into our familial culture. And so it was my siblings were competing with me as well. And um, I, I, yeah, I I really took to it and probably in in middle school, um, I think everyone kind of the adults in my life began to look around at each other and say, okay, I think this, this is really a gift. It's more than just a means to an end, you know, a means mm. for her to communicate. I think um, it's a, a kind of art for her. Yeah. Yeah. And anyone who's read your work would uh, would get that sense immediately. I think you're just a phenomenal writer. And and it's fascinating, I think, about how um, clearly your, your dad helped cultivate, uh, I guess, a sense of you finding your own voice at a very young age, which helps you to tell these stories of your, your family across generations and um, see clearly uh, the stories and, and then be able to share them. And it's something we've spoken about a lot on the podcast, um, the importance of story, of knowing um, the stories that have actually animated our lives that uh, sometimes aren't named. I know many families probably are living with stories that have never been named and sometimes someone externally can look right in and go, well, that clearly that family is running on this particular story, but no one in there seems to be aware of it. Um, how, how important is it, do you think, or, or why is it so important that we know and, and tell our stories um, honestly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. And I, I think, you know, I don't, I don't trust myself to know myself apart from the stories that made me. So that includes the stories that, you know, I've lived, but that also includes stories that um, unfolded long before, you know, I was even a thought in anyone's mind that there were stories unfolding that inform the way my family deals with stress, how they communicate joy, how they um, respond in conflict, like, um, 
those things in me didn't start when I was five even. They started when my grandmother was five and when her great-grandmother, you know. Um, yeah, and so yeah. I, I I think it's, it's you know, very important. Alice, Alice Walker talks about this. She says, our histories never unfold in isolation. They right. never unfold in isolation. I think that uh, she also says, this is a beautiful um, poetic way of saying it, but she says, how simple a thing it seems that to know ourselves as we are, we must know our mother's names. Mm -hmm. How simple a thing it seems that to know ourselves as we are, we must know our mother's names. And of course, she's speaking poetically. She doesn't mean the the, the literal yeah. name, of course, but um, mm. to know, you know, that 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 mm. that origin, to know the patterns that have formed you, the rhythms of behavior, um, I, I think can can be really liberating, really terrifying. It can be terrible and beautiful. Um, but but ultimately liberating. Yeah. And even if, I mean, I'm thinking about people who are listening, who are like, I don't have access to those stories. I've been thinking even, you know, practicing imagination for those stories is so worthwhile even. Um, it, yeah, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. we, we resist in in our culture i think we resist we try to be the self-made woman or man and we we try to think we're some sort of product of only ourselves and, mm. and when really you know we're we are only interrelational beings you know and i know my mother um is is in her 90s and has some dementia now and um what's fascinating is that some of the stories i'm hearing are actually the first time i've heard them because her, her memory is going further back and mm. it, it's actually this kind of gentle time a lot of the time where i'm having a, a better understanding of my mother and what shaped her which as you say then i can can see how that has in turn shaped me uh, but some of those stories, it's like her brain didn't have access to them uh, until now. And and it's this wow. sort of soft, soft growing time. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful that you're able to kind of travel into those places with yeah. her. And yeah. so interesting that, yeah, you said that she she's able to go to places that she mm -hmm. wouldn't have. Yeah, I'm just interested, I suppose, in the idea that that sometimes the energies that animate our lives lie or that the truth of them lie in a story that we don't even know um I, I remember talking to somebody a while ago who was wrestling for a long time with this anxiety that probably their whole life they had this sense that what if we don't have enough what if we don't have enough you know so they were working um more shifts than they needed to they were they they were saving kind of um almost with a sense of paranoia about themselves and um and they were of the opinion that they were just somebody with a generalized anxiety condition uh and then they they sort of delved back into I think it was one family Christmas they had a, a long conversation um, uh, around the Christmas tree with family, and heard a story of a great grandparent who basically was living in poverty and and that every generation since then this anxiety about not having enough has sort of you know been passed down and passed down and passed down and that actually what was animating their life was a story that they didn't even know about. And um and only obviously I mean we speak about this often I guess in this tradition that the truth knowing the truth can set us free, and that beginning with that stage of of actually naming this is the story I'm living into this is the story that uh, is giving my life this particular kind of energy is the beginning of I suppose being able to uh, affirm the beautiful things and perhaps heal the the less beautiful things. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. I mean, it, even as I was interviewing, I, I would like 
I would call my grandma on Saturday and then like write the chapter on Sunday. And so throughout writing, um, I would, I would call and, you know, go deeper into these stories and ask these questions. And as, you know, I'm piecing these things together, even between my, my dad and my mom and, and, and his mom's story and my, my relationship to my dad, I'm seeing these threads that are so, so gentle. So Mm -hmm. like near invisible, um, even these patterns of behavior I talked, my grandma talked about, you know, picking her skin apart and, and, and tearing things apart. Now she would never know that, you know, years later, she would have a granddaughter that would have that same pattern, you know, and I, I can't recall seeing her do it. But, yeah. um, you know, I tell a story of me, you know, ripping things apart, tearing, tearing leaves apart to um, kind of calm me later on in, in, in the book. And there's mm-hmm. so many habits, so many ways that we process life that we've, we've inherited that um, you can, you can, I think people hesitate to go there sometimes because you want to be forward thinking. You don't want to feel bound. You don't want to feel bound by the past, but I think there's a way to travel into those memories without being held captive by them. Like you said, um, there's a way to go there and allow it to be a portal to liberation as opposed to, you know, this, this is a full definition and, and yeah. And that definition has no end. And of course, some people struggle with um, the relationship with their parents and the the people they believe their parents or grandparents were. And um, sometimes it's it's later in life when you've developed a lot more self-compassion that you can look with that more compassionate gaze. But either way, hearing the stories can help that process. I think the you know, we, we quickly slot people into... Um, into definitions or in into label them as as being something and and the stories are, have a good way of unraveling that of of unraveling any any pat definition or any you know pat little box we're putting someone in even if it might be that we've defined them like that because of the woundings that we have because of the way mm-hmm. they wounded us but hearing more stories will always disrupt um, any of the narratives we might have about them I think so the the stories are. Um, are the power for for finding these connections and those invisible threads, I think. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I think a specific kind of story, a story with like a lot of particularity, because for a long time in my family, we told stories, but they were very general, you know, so you can, there's a way to tell my grandmother's story to say, oh, her mother didn't raise her. Her mother had a mental illness and then she lived. And and there's a way to do that. And I think, you know, we're prone to telling those kinds of general stories. Mm. Um, But it's actually in those very, those moments of particularity, those very specific stories that you, you find her, you know, I, I don't think I could have given my father, I couldn't have honored him I couldn't have honored his story if I would have done a general story of my father. You know, it would have been quite easy to reduce him to the addict, you know, and, and that's his whole plot. Um, yeah. But yeah. it was really important to me and 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 still is out, even outside of writing to to see people and experience people with um, speci- specificity. I you you yeah. you meet my father differently when he's you know experiencing a ballet class for the first time and -hmm. people might ask why do you have that story in there cool you know like this is just these random these Mm -hmm. random fragments of of stories and Mm -hmm. but you know it's fragments that make that make us human that's that's what creates the the humanity of a person that's what translates the humanity of a person Mm -hmm. i think is is those fragments um and and 
and I, I want to experience that as, as much as I can. Yeah. Uh, that is such a beautiful idea. Yes, that, that humans aren't like the blurb on the back of a novel. You can't sum a, a human up that, that neatly. It, it, you know, the truth lies in the, in the fragments in between. That's such a stunning idea, Cole. I love that. Um, so, so if people, I guess, then had a sense that they wanted to maybe hear some of these stories, learn, imagine some of these stories um, from maybe their lineage as, as you have done, um, what is a good guiding way to to, I guess, go about that? Because, you know, obviously it's not about sitting down with maybe a grandparent or a parent or a journal and, you know, demanding answers or anything like that. So how, how, what was the, the gentle or what was the, the way you went about inviting these stories to, to come out and be what they really are? Yeah, I love this question. That's a very, yeah, that's a very sensitive question. I think I, for me, I had to re, I had to reclaim. I had to do work to reclaim a, a sense of curiosity, like you know, a sincere curiosity, that um, kind of released a lot of expectations and a sense of of, of judgment. But I had to learn how to ask questions again, you know. Uh, and it seems like such a simple thing, but I had my ability to kind of be curious about one's humanity had just completely atrophied my ability to ask a good question and mm. you know poor questions lead to very poor stories i found yeah. early on you know if yeah. i would ask a, a very general you know poetic but very general question it wouldn't get me much it would get me a reduction like a, you know it would, it would only serve for my father to reduce himself to something one thing i had to become strange um, and add, ask strange things like what's a time where you felt afraid but you didn't want to admit that you were afraid these are the kinds of mm. questions I started to ask questions that would get me into help me to access memories that they you know people are are prone to discarding you know I think we're not really used to people listening to our stories and, and really paying attention so you start to tell one and you think uh, people, you no one wants to hear that to completion, or that's that's just a small moment. Nothing happened, um, and I had to do a lot of work to convince, you know, uh, you know, not with speech, but with you know, posture and curiosity to to show my my father and my grandmother that I I, I have time. I had time to hear stories that they thought were had no meaning, and that I believed there to be meaning in them, um, even when they didn't. Yeah. So I asked, I, I think it takes work. You have to really come up with um, some strange questions that, 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 that don't like, it's almost weird. It'd be weird to ask them at a dinner table, but you almost have to become a bit weird to, to allow <laughs> that curiosity to grow, you know? Um, and so those, those, those stories, the, the, the very specific stories that are in the book, like none of those came by me saying like, what's something that you struggled with? You know, that, like yeah. nothing came like that. I, I I had to do a lot of work of refining and refining questions because people I found, including myself, we want to reduce ourselves even to yes. a singular yes. story, to a singular narrative, because we expect other people to that, that that's going to be their appetite is for a singular story. We want to make it clean and neat. So my father would give me this very, you know, clean and neat story about why he is. And I had to say, no, I, I want you to take me there. I want you to take me to the moment where you had to choose, you know, mm -hmm. if you feel safe, I want to go there with you, where you had to choose, are you going to go with your father? What did you see in his eyes that made you not trust him? You know, and um, 
it it, it, it takes time. I, I was very fortunate that my my father and my grandmother trusted me, mm. probably because my position in the family, you know, my my disposition. They they know me quite well, and I think they know that mm. I would um. I was a safe place to land, you know, uh, they of course knew I was writing a book, but, um, mm. I, I think I was probably more protective of their stories than they were. You know, my grandma would say, oh, you could publish that. And I would say, no, grandma, I'm not, I, I will not put that in a book, mm. <laughs> but, but thank you for trusting me with it. And I think moments like that where I would say, actually, that's just going to be for us, or that's just going to be for the next generation. It's not going to be for anyone's consumption slowly yeah. built trust as well yeah yeah and i think that all you, you you're right that the truest memory is really the one that survives that when you are you know we we have our pat narratives of ourselves we have our nicely polished kind of versions of things that we think will be more acceptable to people but we also publicly affirm um the ones that i mean as you say it's it's about those that carry some weight and generally that's a white male cisgender kind of weight mm -hmm. um and they're the stories that write history you know in a public sense they're the stories that survive um and and we miss in 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 wiping over so many of the particularities of particular lives we've we're, we're getting this this very reduced view and and so i think it, it works both within the the soul in the stories we tell as well as within smaller communities as well as in the public the wider public um narrative um and and i, I don't know I, th I guess questions and and leaning in closer for stories is one of the ways that we can um that we can shift that yeah really. yeah you know it's interesting I'm, I'm i'm gonna use your phrase there cole um get a little bit weird with the questions i think that's wonderful because i'm thinking about um i'm thinking about uh, i made a box of uh, cards with questions on them for sort of conversation at the end of last year. And I had one question in there for a while. Um, there might still be a version of it in there, but the, the question was something like, what's one of the hardest things you've gone through? It was one of the heavier questions. And I noticed when it would come out in, in groups, what you would get would be sometimes deep vulnerable sharing, but often you'd actually get um, people almost rehearsing the story of a struggle that they've told many times over that, um, you know, it's almost more performative now than it is vulnerable sharing because this has become a, a key tape in their life. And so I changed the question to um, what was the most challenging hour of your life? And it was really, it was fascinating how just that slight twist suddenly led people into telling the story um, in a totally different way. They weren't sort of giving the, the synopsis of it but they were actually recounting the specificity of the moment. They were recounting the smell in the air. They were recounting what they were wearing, what, you know, they physically, you know, the sweat that they were feeling or whatever was going on in that particular moment. And it's, it is so interesting to, to think about um, that the truth does lie in the specificity, not in the generalization. It's such a, such a profound insight. Yes. Yeah. I love that, 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 that simple shift of the question. I, that's, that's genius The to bring it into a particular kind of point in time. And it's mm. like in those descriptions that, and, and it's weird. I find my, I do this when I tell stories and I'm like, no, tell the story. Cool. Like, just like tell it the way, you know, and it's, it's, it, when you get into, you know, the smells and, and the, the, the feelings that are conflicting, the things that don't make sense, the things that don't add up, I think that is where interest is, you know, I think that's where we can, um, 
grow nearer to ourselves really because it's there's such a lack of clarity when you get really specific you're like oh that that I don't know why I felt that way or I felt this way and I felt this at the same time or she said this and I said something that had nothing to do with what she said in response there's that happens a lot more in dialogue than people realize um so getting into those specifics I think also allows you to honor the moment in a different way and you know what as we're talking I'm thinking of just the inclination to kind of excuse certain things or as an older, as you grow up or, you know, you see stories from a different vantage point. I think that's beautiful, but the ability to travel back and just allow like what was true for six-year-old Cole when she walked into that ballet class and don't make excuses for people with your 33-year-old kind of cognition. Don't do that yet. Like let's just wait and actually with what the knowledge that she had and the body she was in what did she feel and and i'm so prone to to kind of um suppress that 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 little girl with a reasoning that doesn't belong to her you know that that i didn't mm. have access to and and so going into specificity i think really kind of forbids us from 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 doing that in a way yeah yeah that's wonderful that's wonderful um look there, there's so many threads in the book cole that that you know we could be sitting here talking for hours um going through all of them but if you did like we did want to touch on one is is the idea of whiteness and the damage it has caused um we discussed this a bit with uh, willie jennings on the podcast last year and, and i know the idea itself resonated with a lot of our listeners i'm curious how do you define the i guess the term whiteness when when people ask you about it you know um most of what I've learned of whiteness, I've learned from Willie James Jennings. Yeah, right. <laughs> M- much of what I've learned in terms of how I articulate it. So anything he says, I second. And if you're you're listening and, and you're um, curious about, about this, I, I suggest you listen to that episode with him. Yeah. He's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and for me, I mean, I um, worked for an organization that did an event with, with Dr. Jennings um, in the midst of the summer of 2020 um and i felt this kind of resistance flare up when he began to talk about whiteness as this kind of yeah general term you know as this as this force really this 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 um historic systemic force that transcends any one particular person or body or um, it transcends that when it, I felt this resistance to it initially, and it, and it took time for me to, and and a lot of reading of of his of his work, um, and and of his, of his research to to make sense of it. So, anyways, if you see me use the term whiteness, it's coming from Willie James Jennings. I love that that he's a, a part of this po- podcast. Um, but I would say, you know, I, I would echo everything that he would say and say, yeah, I think what I've had to learn about whiteness is to to not divorce it from from the body, of course, you know, but to realize that it can exist, you know, far outside the a, a physical body, that it, that it can exist in our um, ideologies and our systems and our patterns and our excuses and in the way that we view history. Um, in our communication, this this force that uh, that, that 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 elevates a, a, a white vision, which is often grounded in superiority, um, mm-hmm. g- grounded in uh, 
survival by suppression, survival by taking, you know, mm -hmm. I, um, yeah, I, I, I won't, I was gonna go, go down a rabbit hole, but, but, but I'm not going to do that. But I think there are ways that you can see this kind of I ideology and this force appear in our lives. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, you see it in the stories that I talk about in, in this year flesh where, mm -hmm. you know, the whole book isn't about whiteness, but, but it's a, it's almost like a shadow, this, mm -hmm. this figure you, you, that you're, you're forced mm -hmm. to contend with on different occasions depending on the story mm -hmm. to realize oh we're um mm -hmm. yeah, of course in the justice chapter i talk about it directly but mm -hmm. you know being a spiritual person being someone who's formed in a christian tradition uh i can't escape the way that what dr mm -hmm. christina cleveland calls the white male god has informed how I view the divine. I can't escape it. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't even go to church growing up, not really. And still I found myself formed in the image of a white male God. Mm -hmm. Now for me, I know I'm, 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 I, I know I'm taking this and specifying your question a bit. I'm talking about uh, mm -hmm. Christianity here and not whiteness in general, but I hope that's okay. Mm -hmm. But for me that, that showed up like a God who, wanted to use me more than love me mm -hmm. um there was a lot of utilitarian kind of ideology present when i um was contending with the the, the god being presented to me in, in college specifically it looked like uh, a god that um wanted to define me and, and defined me by them and not by me that was kind of disinterested in the interior life disinterested in a, a, a kind of selfhood and more interested in kind of assimilation and and oneness um and it, and it looked like a god that was doing a lot of violence toward the black body frankly um i i think i was in this tension, especially as a, a, a young adult, people might still consider me that I'm 32, but I was in this tension of um, this white male God, this white straight male God that was being presented to me and a, a kind of desire to, or a kind of pressure to leave my body or mm -hmm. reject my body or punish my body in order to belong to that God. And in order to belong to that world, it was mm -hmm. like this narrative of what will you give? What will you do? You know, um, like he, if he died on the cross, what are you going to do? That that's the, and I know that's not everyone's experience, but that certainly was my encounter. You know, if he, he, he suffered this violence. What are you going to give for your God? And so there was, um, you know, this experience of like connecting the divine with this like menacing kind of force, this, this need to sacrifice my flesh when in actuality as a black woman, I needed, I needed to hear a narrative of a God who was actually displaying incredible tenderness and compassion and curiosity about my body, as opposed to demanding it be sacrificed, um, on any mm -hmm. hill, you know? Um, and I, I was, I was not encountering that uh, in, in the years I, I write about in this year flesh. 
Yep. And I love that story you told of you and your sister with the notes in the fire. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that Jesus wants it all and will you give your life for him? And your sister writing on a note, um, we're too young to die. And then <laughs> almost as an afterthought, you say, she wrote, sorry. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, to me, that's this this truth and the life impulse and the God impulse in, in you as, as little girls who then could see further than most adults see. And they, you know, and to be able to say, no, actually, this is a God who invites us to life, not to, not to actually, sorry, we're too young to die is a very holy impulse, I think. Oh, I love, yeah, I love that. Just beautiful. And I think what I loved about the whole book was exactly what you've just said here, that, you know, that you've taken that, that idea of whiteness is a shadow through the whole book, but because you are um, bringing to it a, a lens of how is that sitting um, in your own spiritual life and in, in a Christian faith that has caused us to really be disembodied, um, that's caused us to say, um, well, that somehow we must expect to be, if we're being effective and successful Christians, we should, our healing should be swift. Um, mm. We should just be able to forgive on demand, really, or that's what we're obliged to do somehow. We must be nice. I think um, that's something women have particularly um, been hit with quite strongly, the, the God who demands us to be nice all the time. And mm-hmm. um, and for me, I know it was a sense of after years of exploring, that we've talked about this on the podcast before, of, of that idea of kenosis, of self-emptying and how that can be abused. It took me a long time until I was well into adulthood before I started to suspect that no one, that the people who were telling us to be canonically self-emptying and sacrificial in our lives, it always to be seemed to be the same kind of people. And that we were, you know, it it was about who gets to, um, who should be the ones to self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it has a God gloss put on it, a God demand. And, and I think in your book, you've explored all of that. And, and really, there was a, a, a freedom in saying, well, for starters, you, you know, your body is good and you, you begin in an embodied way and you meet God in an embodied way. Um, and in the particularity of your particular body. But that also things like forgiveness grow. You write beautifully on that. I think so many people feel compelled they should be able to forgive instantly. And you say you mm-hmm. can't force hair to grow faster than your body allows and you can't reason resentment away and trauma that comes with it, that that forgiveness grows and can grow slowly and that healing ultimately is slowly. In fact, freedom is it can be slow mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That having yeah. having that that patience with ourselves and yeah, it's it's interesting that you that you thought of that you that you connected it to that kind of um the 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 sense of urgency. I mean, you get to talking about whiteness and you know there's a sense of urgency that that is real and 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 very credible because it's a credible threat. But mm-hmm. I think at the same time, in terms of dealing with the particularity of our stories. And 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 what it means to forgive the 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 pastor from when I was ten that told me this or that you know mm-hmm. I I think I can meet that with a, a further demand on my body on my mind to mm-hmm. to demand myself to forgive or I can just pay attention I can make note I can try I can I can try to release some of that that judgment some of that that um yeah some of that 
that forcing, that pressure, and, and to just become curious about myself and say, okay, when when will that happen? Or what 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 story am I in right now that's making me think of back then? And yeah, and and I I'm with you. I think these things take time. Forgiveness, liberation, all of these kind of big philosophical topics that we we want clean answers for. We want the clean and direct path. It's just doesn't it it just never is that way mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and in that uh part that sue was quoting about forgiveness I, I thought the it was such a fascinating theological point that i don't think i've ever heard before that we don't have as much control over forgiveness as we think we do as, as sue mentioned i just i think about the fact that a couple of nights ago i was um making dinner and i uh I got a, a bad cut in my thumb from chopping up while well, i was chopping up some some food and I don't look at that wound in the few days since then and, and you know, uh, morally judge the fact it hasn't healed yet. <laughs> I kind of go, it's it's doing its thing. This It's on a timeline. It'll figure itself out. It knows what to do. And yet we mo- if, if people haven't got to a stage of forgiveness yet, there's a moral judgment that comes with it, almost as if they haven't done something rather than understanding that it's a process that actually they're not in control of um, or not at least totally in control of. It's such a different view of forgiveness that... Um, yeah, probably goes against the majority of what is taught in the in the majority of churches. Is that a fair comment? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely gotten push pushback on that. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. But I think the, illus- the the illustration you've just said is is so beautiful and so true. Like we wouldn't demand that uh, that that kind of healing, and 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 we wouldn't punish it or or cast a moral judgment on our physical healing, but our emotional healing, where um, we've convinced ourselves that we somehow have this kind of mysterious control over it, it's just insincere. And what you have is people. Um, portraying forgiveness or or, or feigning forgiveness even with the best of intentions and it actually prevents them from doing the real work of interior curiosity and 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 healing and jumping into places and that they that they truly aren't prepared to go I, i i've done that where i've said yeah you know you know, you hear, oh, you forgive. There's this. Be- it's it's a beautiful sentiment that essentially says, when you forgive, you're freeing yourself too. Okay, I I, I get the sentiment. It's beautiful, um, but it drove me to pretend like I was forgiving <laughs> when really I wasn't because yes. I'm like, this will make me free. Well, guess what? You can- that's not how freedom works either. Uh, you know no. that that you can just choose. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of forces and systems and and day to day places that we occupy that 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 keep it from so, and so, yeah. I I I realized that I was um kind of playing the part of a forgiven person and in that playing the part of a healed person and traveling back into spaces and and, and into relationships that I had no um there was no wisdom in me being in those those places if if you know what I mean. And oh, it's, yeah. that's a very that's a very dangerous um system of of mercy that we're setting up. Yes. Um that's actually displaying very little mercy for ourselves. Yeah, do you know, Cole? It reminds me so much of uh, of a, an extended family member who I don't see much of, but I do remember every time I saw them for a number of years, they would share this particular story of something that had happened to them, um, somebody they'd had a falling out with, and they would tell it with such anger, 
bitterness and pain only to finish every time around the dinner table with. But anyway, I've forgiven them and we've, we've moved on now. And and I remember thinking, we keep this went for two or three years. I'd keep hearing this and I'd think, you haven't forgiven them at all. And, and in fact, maybe the healthiest thing would be if you sat down and said, and I'm still really angry about it. That actually, the, the, uh, the illusion of forgiveness or the sense that they must have forgiven by now was, as you said, holding them back from the actual work that is necessary to reach the healing. Um, you know, it's, it's, I guess if you, you know, to use another physical analogy, if you break your leg and then just pretend it's, it's healed the next week, you're going to end up doing more damage to the original injury. And I kind of think there's a, it comes right back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation about truth telling that, um, that you, it's so essential to find real authentic healing to, to sit with what the truth is, even if that truth is, no, I haven't forgiven this particular thing yet. And today I am angry about it. That actually acknowledging that isn't the barrier to forgiveness, but the only path to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious as we speak about this idea of, of, um, of whiteness and maybe the divorce from the, the embodied experience to a very intellectual um, uh, way of approaching the world. And you write beautifully about how you feel the idea of whiteness maybe caught you a little bit when you were when you were in uh, in college and very much living in your head in that particular time um but you go on to write about contemplation and, and I suppose we probably view this podcast as largely sitting in or, or having a, a strong resonance with the contemplative tradition um but you you do write about uh, contemplation being viewed largely as a, a head kind of exercise an intellectual exercise and that you're much more interested in embodied contemplation um can you talk a little bit about uh what you see as embodied contemplation and, and why you think it's so um so vital to to view it that way mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah in college i I mean, I've always been someone who kind of has lived in my head a bit, you know, as as a shy child. And so when I got to college, it was the first time I was really kind of in predominantly white spaces and specifically, you know, a university context where it's white intellectualism that's like the end all be all. It's it's just elevated over over everything in, um, in, in academic contexts. And that bled into my kind of first experiences with God and with theology. I ended up in a um, a church that had, you know, a, a lot of intele- white intellectuals in it. And I'm always careful when I talk about this because I don't mean to suggest that Black spirituality is absent um, or intellect is absent from uh black black spirituality but i think it looks very different different it's it's a a, a intellect that doesn't require us to sacrifice our bodies on any altar of like understanding or like greater knowledge um there's this scene that i i open this here flesh with that comes from a scene of tony morrison's beloved and when people ask me about it, it contemplation i tend to go to the scene it's um the setting is is a clearing um people many people have written about it and written about the clearing in in her novel beloved and um it's where you know the people uh the the matriarch of of beloved baby baby shugs she gathers her people in this clearing and she says you know let the let the children come 
And so the, the children kind of run to the center of the clearing. Everyone's waiting, waiting on the perimeters at the beginning. And she says, let, let your mothers hear you laugh. And, and, and so they laugh. And she says, uh, men come and, and, and let, your, let your wives see you dance. And then the men start dancing. I, I might be mixing this up a bit, but um, it sparsely matters because she says, let the woman come. And the woman come to the center of the clearing. And she says, cry for the living and the dead. Just cry. So the woman kind of let loose and wails, but then she describes that they all get tangled up in each other until the the men are wailing and the children are, are dancing and the women are laughing. And then they collapse in this field after this kind of very embodied spiritual moment, they collapse. And then Baby Shooks gives her sermon. And 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 it's a unique sermon. She says, In this here place, we flesh flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass, love it, love it hard. And she goes on, you know, in, into this kind of beautiful monologue. Yonder, they don't love your flesh. They just as soon. So um, she goes on to tell a different gospel. So Morrison actually writes, she doesn't tell them to go and sin no more, which is kind of like the classic gospel message. But instead, she led them in this embodied um this embodied spiritual release and then she tells them about a kind of spirituality that actually is about the dignity and the beauty of our bodies um that is that 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 scene and and people <laughs> sometimes get scared when i tell them this uh a lot of orthodox christians but but that scene is the framework of my spirituality like when i think about what kind of what i want my spirituality to look like it's the spirituality that they were able, that Morrison was able to write up in that clearing. Mm -hmm. How does that relate to contemplation? Well, I think it's, it, it, I can't afford, I can't afford to be disembodied as a Black person. In that book, you could take it to Beloved. They couldn't afford a, disem, a disembodied spirituality. That clearing couldn't have been that. I mean, it could have. Baby Shug's the Matriarch could have created a place of bodily escapism to escape the horrors that they were enduring under the thumb of whiteness. It could have been a practice of bodily escape. Instead, it's a practice of embodiment, which I think is a, a beautiful kind of resistance to um, our, our instincts. Uh, so what, what, when I began to practice contemplation, you know, I was reading, I was reading all kinds of people, but it was mostly, um, white men who I still read today like uh most of them I I I still you know admire Thomas Merton <laughs> you know I, I admire these Bonhoeffer now and I, I admire them but I've had to distinguish or I've had to integrate um a real kind of black lived contemplation in into some of in, into some of that thinking because when I think about my ancestors who did not have agency over their body, did not have, um, yeah, did not have agency over their body. I I can't conceive of a liberation apart from that, right? That's my story. That's I can't conceive of a liberation apart from that. And if the kind of goal of contemplation, like most spirituality, is a kind of nearness to self and nearness to God and nearness to others, it for me that ha has to happen um not from escapism 
you know, but from that integration and from that self-protection. And, you know, mm. this isn't, you know, new, this isn't something that I thought of, I think, in the most original sense of the contemplative tradition, which has often been stolen from Eastern spirituality, is there has historically been an embodied element, you know. It just so happens that in translation, a lot of that's been lost under the um, kind of idolization of white intellectualism. A lot of that em embodied um, expression has been lost when we talk about contemplative life. And I, I think that that's brilliant, that sense of how um, embodied uh, an embodied spirituality is actually, I think, we come full circle back to talking about whiteness in in Christianity. You know, it, it's so intertwined. It's so, you know, how do you how do you you know pull out the threads when um in in so many places whiteness has been um, part of colonization? And so, you know, when when we come with that, the question then is that you've asked is is how do you separate render, how do you rend whiteness from the image of God? And I think your answer just now about embodied spirituality is is surely one of the most powerful ways we can begin that work. Mm -hmm. um, I also would ask how can we rend the masculine from the image of God that's so firmly mm -hmm. planted there too, and and that it, particularity of our bodies, and perhaps it relates to the particularity of the questions you were talking about with stories as well as a way through this. You know that um, uh, uh, embodied contemplative tradition is quite at home in the particular whether it be our bodies or our stories mm, yes yeah mm. yeah that's beautiful and it's interesting on the the contemplative front i i thought um one of my favorite parts of the book cole was when you write about maybe how whiteness has got its its grip right into even our view of contemplation um you know and, and chasing certain contemplative mystical experiences you're right that more than the grand beauties of our lives, wonder is about having the presence to pay attention to the commonplace. It could be said that to find beauty in the ordinary is a deeper exercise than climbing to the mountaintop. When people or groups become too enamored with mountaintops, we should ask ourselves whether their euphoria comes from love or from the experience of supremacy. For example, whiteness as a sociological force and practice loves mountaintops. Being born of an appetite not for flourishing but for domination, it loves the ascent, the conquering. I thought that was such a beautiful, I never really thought of it this way, but but almost this spiritual quest that sometimes we can find ourselves on when we, you know, maybe have these mystical experiences or whatever to, to chase the extraordinary, chase the mountaintop, find another mountaintop experience of, of the divine, that actually that is in some way, um, you know, a contemplative uh, spirituality that is deeply, deeply, um, I'll use the word poisoned by this whiteness idea of supremacy and conquering over and above all the other ordinary moments of our lives. Mm. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I love that connection too. Yeah, um, from the wonder chapter to our practices of contemplation, it's so, it's so true. I mean, I think when we're most honest, and I can be honest about this in myself, especially when I was in college, it's like you want contemplation to make you use it to make you big. You know, you use it to make you feel feel big, and 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 and, and instead of use it to let you see yourself as you are, which you can you know be still beautiful and lovely and you know worthy to behold, but um, yeah, you, you use it for a sense of, 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 I mean, especially in kind of academic spaces and 
in depending on your context it's the 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 people who are often regarded as as wise i always tell people to be careful how they think about me you know <laughs> because the people who are often regarded as wise i feel like are sometimes you know the yeah the, the people at most fault of um seeking wisdom in order to to feel some sense of stability that that ultimately should be derived from something else from the simple from the day to day and uh it's it's you know i'm still young and learning but i think thankfully i have some older people in my life who <laughs> have um helped me to see um you know i i'm not going to learn i'm not going to learn my way I, I can't speed up the 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 lessons of life i'm not going to learn my way closer to the divine it's just not going to happen i'm not going to um yeah that that's not the kind of knowledge that 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 that's not the way that the that the knowledge of the divine works i think it's quite yes. mysterious and quite subversive that the knowledge of the divine you know it's we talked about kids early on and my sister and i as kids and that it, it's there you yeah, know it's that whole impulse was there that George, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah and yet, yet those those much older were telling you something that was going against what was what was actually the most holy thing you could say in that moment yes and i think having being aware of the shadow that um of of any sort of like it's something like contemplation which we might like to think is um is a safe ground but to know that you know our ego gets in everywhere to that and it also can take us away and not just our ego but um our, our fears and as you say we're trying to desire that that security can be all impulses that can work together and um there's a certain amount of relaxing required in the work of god I think mm -hmm. that um that we mm -hmm. can't speed up and mm -hmm. uh it, that um it's not this thing is not a ladder and it's not a mountain. Yes. Yeah, that's I'm going to put that on a poster I think Cole we can't learn ourselves closer to the divine. I think that is such a that is such a um such a challenging and empowering uh piece of wisdom I think because it, again, it just ties back, back right back into that idea of whiteness, this idea that what's going to get us where we want to go is more effort, more achievement, more, you know, if I if I just push in a little bit harder and put use a little bit more force, I'll be able to get what I want out of this thing. It, that, that, that impulse is kind of the... Um, kind of the thing that has has dragged us so far away from our embodied sense of how this whole thing actually works and is actually structured so look your, your work Cole has been so profound to to us to so so many um it's so wonderful to share a conversation with you we're so grateful and I know um I believe that the paperback of this here flesh is that's coming out very soon isn't it Yes, yeah, January 31st. Mm -hmm. There we go. So by the time this episode is live, that's probably just come out then for people so they can go and get the paperback or the hardback of this here flesh. It's um yeah, it's it's one of the, the more profound books I think um you you'll come across if you have, if you haven't had a chance to read it yet. And obviously Black Liturgies on Instagram as well as there is are those the best ways to to keep up with uh, what you're doing, Cole? Yes, definitely. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you so much again for, for your work and for, um, I guess, the profound impact it's had on on us and the profound uh, insights that you are able to reveal in it about how we can find a, a, a path forward that is embodied and free of um, free of the, the grip of, of this whiteness. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Cole. It's been such a gift. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs>